Welcome to the Dialogue by Wirepoints, connecting the dots between our economy, government, and people. And now your hosts, Ted Dabrowski and Mark Glennon. Mark Glennon here from Wirepoints. I'm here with uh, Matt Rosenberg, our, just joined us as a senior editor. We're very proud to have him. He's been digging into crime issues in particular, particular the top issue really that's uh, become paramount across Illinois and much of the country. Uh, Ted Dabrowski is out today. So, Matt, it's you and me de- uh, defending liberty, defending the uh, the republic. Uh, you have two good articles up, one on this notion of whether we have mass incarceration in prisons. Uh, you have a second one up about about uh, transparency and what's going on in the criminal justice system in Illinois. And I had one up about uh, the mess at the prison review board. We'll get to all three of those, but Matt, why don't you start it up and tell us what you found about this notion of uh, mass incarceration, which is a term commonly used and was thrown around a lot a few years ago when we made changes to the criminal justice system to try to reduce the number of people we have in the slammer. Sure, Mark. When we hear the phrase mass incarceration, we all sort of nod our heads and shuffle and look down at our feet in shame. Um, We presume uh, that there are data to back it up. There are not data to back it up. I checked, uh, you know, years of reports from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. That's a division of the U.S. Justice Department. I found that in Illinois, looking at 2019, and we intentionally chose the last pre-COVID year, that the percent of the adult population that's incarcerated was half of 1%. It grows a little bit if you add those on probation and parole, but not much at all. Um, Nationally, it's uh, similar, but a little bit higher. So that's a decent place to start the conversation, in my view. Yeah, I you know I suppose the pushback immediately from some folks, Matt, would be, yeah, half of one percent sounds real low, but we're talking about millions of people. Um, that's a lot of people to have in jail. That's not the right thing a society should be doing. What would be your reaction to that? Well, a couple. And Pew Research noted uh, just last year that our nation's incarcerated population across all levels—we're talking county jail state and federal prisons, uh, totaled 2.3 million in 2008. That was our peak. Well, our population that year was, as a nation, uh, you know, in excess of 300 million. I crunched the numbers. Uh, you know, we're talking about maybe 1, 1% and change of the adult population back then in 08, and it's been going down steadily every year. So, You know, I guess I come back to uh, a phrase that my grandfather, Jacob, from Brooklyn, via Ukraine, used to use. If somebody was uh, doing something they shouldn't do, he'd call them a nudnik, somebody who should know better but didn't. And so we've got a lot of such people still in our society, but not that many. Uh, And so there are consequences to, you know, poor decisions. And you got to really try to end up in jail these days. And and I'll be getting to that uh, in my second story about judicial transparency. Um, The the rhetoric of mass incarceration has been working. Uh, (laughs) That's part of the reason there's so much crime right now, I think. 
So the rates have been going down, um, and, and the last figures available were 2019. Uh, so that doesn't even reflect the new easy on the prosecution movement that we've seen since then. Uh, it might be substantially lower now you know, since we've had the effect of the, you know, George Soros funded woke prosecutors here and around the country, um, and the Tim Browns at the Cook County court system and all the rest. Um, where this does get more difficult to talk about is the breakdown by race, because uh, mm -hmm. there is of course a, a variance here in who's getting thrown in jail. Matt, what did you, uh, what did you find there? Yeah, we wanted to take a good look at incarceration rates by race in the state of Illinois. Uh, which is, of course, our primary coverage area. And I found that, and again, this is straight from official data from the Census, um, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, uh, covering local jails and state and federal prisons. We found the incarceration rate in Illinois for Black people was the highest. It was 2.16%. Uh, the next highest was for Latinos, one half of 1%. Uh, for white people, the incarceration rate was just a bit over one quarter of 1%. And I say this is a point for discussion as well. The incarceration rate for Asians in Illinois was four one hundredths of 1%. You know, there they go again, those white adjacent Asians outpacing everyone else in their excellence. Um, but yeah, so I've gotten some pushback. In fact, I was on a, a black radio station talking about this just yesterday. And the idea uh, that comes up is still, hey, well, if you look at the prison population, uh, you know, the greatest proportion of it by far is black people. And there's something wrong there. The system is still fixed against blacks, uh, police and the courts. And I know some people believe that. And I think reasonable people can disagree and discuss. I happen to take issue with that. I say, what about the 98 percent of black people in Illinois who aren't in jail? What's their secret? Well, the same as the Asians and most whites and most Latinos. You know, we get back to things like parenting and personal agency. You know, it's an emotional conversation. I get it. Yeah, and that, I, I think neither you nor I deny the reality that blacks suffer from a legacy of, of racism uh, but the question is what to do about it now and what what the best uh, policies are respecting uh, prosecutions and 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 important or importantly per perhaps far more importantly ultimately is the underlying sociological conditions or cultural issues that uh, that drive crime um, imprisonment is a band-aid uh, nobody wants to see people in prison but you have to do it in the short term especially for dangerous violent people uh, that doesn't mean that you ignore other issues, uh, strive to accomplish the longer-term solutions. Uh, but uh, I, I know you agree with me on that, Matt. Um, but you know, what's what's the uh, uh, the broader point point here? In the you know, there's basically a flawed analysis that's been going on. What's your what's your feeling about that? Well, I think this stems back to the way that a lot of our 
prosecutors, uh, city council members, mayors, and elected officials, and generally our progressives within our population are educated about how to look at things. Everybody is schooled in the isms, you know, of racism, sexism, uh, you know, ageism, I suppose, which I will say that's a very real thing. I suppose they all have been, and yeah, we've got, boy, do we have a lot of water under the bridge here in Chicago. There has been systemic anti-black racism engendered uh, by whites for centuries, but now it's 2022, things have changed. And what I hear from people on the South side when I go down there, which has been quite often is, you know, it's a message of hope, possibility, and, and personal responsibility. Uh, we all want safe streets. People are afraid to go out of their homes. Um, on the data side, I would close out with two additional points. There is a theory that the prisons uh, are still crowded with black people nailed on drug charges. And I looked at the Bureau of Justice Statistics report on Illinois and who's in jail for what. And this is uh, in the state facilities, which is the vast bulk of prisoners are in the state system. Uh, most people who are in are in for violent crimes, 56%. Uh, 12% are in for property crimes. 14% of state prisoners in Illinois are in for drug crimes, another 16% for uh, what's called public order, which includes gun law violations. Um, so, you know, 14% of the Illinois state prison system population is in for drug charges. People are not getting put away for a bag of weed. I've had a Chicago cop tell me if he stops a car and sees crack pipe on the dashboard, he doesn't even charge the people for that because he knows the case will not get prosecuted. He's usually looking for guns. Um, so I'd say statistically, that's a narrative that was once true. In fact, Illinois was notorious for putting black people away on minor drug charges. That then was a miscarriage of justice. It doesn't happen much anymore. The other thing is, that uh, nationally imprisonment rates are going down faster for blacks than any other group, 32% uh, between 2009 and 2019. So, you know, we have a movement underway to decarcerate, yet we have certain types of violent crime arising very fast in our cities, including murders and carjackings. Um, so we got a problem here. We got a problem here. And uh, uh, what really scares people and annoys people is the constant stories we hear about violent repeat offenders not being prosecuted or being put back on the street. And it's uh, frustrating because of the difficulty of identifying exactly who's responsible for that when it happens, uh, which leads us into your second wonderful piece, Matt, on transparency or the lack thereof, more specifically, in our criminal justice system. Uh, You've got an article up on that. Uh, summarize what you found there for us. You bet, Mark. I mean, I start with a few names. Ella French, Melissa Ortega, Olga Calderon, Denny Zhang, Keith Cooper, Dwayne Williams, Michael Mickey, all people of color, 
killed in Chicago by charged suspects who were either out on low cash or no cash bond for earlier crimes that hadn't gone to trial, or they were out on parole or probation. Well, in all of those cases, all of those dead people of color and many more who I didn't just name, judges bear significant responsibility for those deaths. They made decisions to put people like repeat convicted carjackers back on the street or to not hold before trial people who had committed violent crime, uh, alleged violent crime. So how could we begin to evaluate the aggregate performance records of judges and not just have to depend on piecemeal news reports. It would help a lot if there were online access to all their decisions and we could see, you know, what were the charges? What was the case outcome? Uh, what was the sentencing range? What was the sentence? How many priors did the guy have? Uh, you know, that whole retinue of basic common sense questions that people ask. But you can't. It's against the law. And I get into how the law restricts the availability of that information. Uh, if you're on site and doing work, like, say, that great uh, Chicago uh, website called CWB Chicago, if you're down there in the county court building, you can report everything. But there's just too much for any one organization to track. We need coders to go at this with um, scripts and scrapers. We need transparency websites so the public can see when we vote on these judges, what the heck is their record in some? Yeah, it's a real roadblock, man. And this is part of why we're so delighted to have you here. Uh, we have taken a, a shot at trying to uh, get some of this information in the past. It was impossible for us to do a, a, a meaningful summer, we thought. And, uh, you know, we're glad to have you starting to take a whack at this. And as you say, we have an elected judicial system. How are you supposed to uh, vote for these people if if you don't have the information and it's not available? Um, we've got a, a major transparency issue and tackling it is is going to be a big challenge. We're going to continue to to whack at it. And uh, you know that, that, that kind of brings us to our ne next topic, Matt, where uh, the rubber has really hit the road with the something called the Prison Review Board in Illinois. <clears throat> this is a appointed board. Appointees have to be approved by the state Senate, uh, which has power to grant parole, early release, good conduct, and make clemency suggestions to the governor, which the governor uh, typically follows. Um, Pritzker's nominations, however, have been getting a lot of scrutiny now. Uh, Monday, the Senate did not uh, approve. It rejected one of his appointees. Another one resigned. There are, I think, three or more up to date on these numbers than I am at, but three other appointees who are languishing in the Senate where uh, th there are concerns. It's not sure they're going to get uh, be appointed. And uh, two, two, two other remainders. And uh, this is a a hot button topic and it apparently got underneath Pritzker's skin. Um, I have a piece up on this 
uh, when asked about this on Tuesday, he blamed Republicans, even though Republicans only have 18 of the 59 uh, Senate seats. Uh, they want to tear this agency of government apart, Pritzker said. Um, but uh, the fact is that Democrats joined in in killing his nominee. Uh, I'll read you from a line in the Chicago Tribune. The governor failed to note that 14 Democratic senators, most of them representing suburban districts, joined 17 Republicans to turn down his nomination of Eleanor Wilson. The final vote was 31 to 15, with 12 Democrats failing to vote. That is, they didn't want to irritate the governor, but uh, so they just skipped out on the vote entirely. Um, some of them were quite outspoken to the Tribune. They are concerned about how easily people are getting paroled, early released. There's no consistency in the uh, in the process here. Uh, the tragic result of all this is that right now, there's not even enough members on the board to constitute a quorum for doing business. Um, and Pritzker went further in criticizing the, those Republic, Republicans. He linked them to QAnon. Uh, the grand old party, the GOP, as the Republican Party called, is the GQP, Pritzker said, uh, the grand QAnon party. QAnon, is, of course, is this crazy internet conspiracy theory that Democrats internationally have some chain of child molesters and everything, and they're uh, out to ruin the country and ruin Western civilization and all the rest. It's a crackpot theory. I'm not aware of anybody uh, in the Illinois legislature who has ever expressed the slightest bit of allegiance or sentiment or approval of anything that QAnon did. But Pritzker made that charge uh, remarkably, uh, and he's got the task of having to fill these and get a bipartisan cooperation on them, fill these positions that are open. So we got a real mess here. Uh, he's not going to get a whole lot of cooperation when he's throwing around charges like that that are um, – you know, as insulting as they are foolish, really. Um, Matt, you know, this really ties in directly with your, your other work about uh, what was your reaction to what's going on at the Prison Review Board? Part of my reaction, Mark, was to look at what it was that these guys had been given life for. And of course, we know that uh, two who were let out were cop killers. One of the cases grabbed me uh, in particular, and not in a good way, uh, one of the released uh, cop killers is named Johnny Veal. He was 17 in 1970 when, and this is according to the Sun-Times, um, with 30 caliber rifles, they killed two cops. And let's say their names, James Severin and Anthony Rosado. They were walking across a baseball diamond in the old Cabrini Green public housing project. And you'll never guess what they were there for. They were there for <laughs> positive community interactions <laughs> by another name. That, that, that's a term that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot uses now. Uh, you know, cops are supposed to get out there and meet and greet and build goodwill in the community. Um, and uh, they were walking across a baseball diamond when they were gunned down by someone in an apartment building, and police later cracked the case and won conviction. So, you know, and even Kim Fox, who's kind of a decarcerator herself, uh, 
had said in a letter to the parole board that she strongly opposed parole for Johnny Veal, that this was a cold-blooded execution, and she noted that he had bragged about it. So, you know, I think JB kind of, his appointees jumped the shark here. And when your own Senate Democratic caucus is lining up with the Republicans, oh, and then a bunch of the Democrats who didn't vote against these guys sat out the vote, which tells you something. Whenever a legislator abstains, that tells you a lot. They sure didn't want to take a yes vote on this. Um, you know, JB's way out ahead of himself here. And yes, it's an election year and Republicans are rightly making an issue of uh, Democrats who are thought to be soft on crime. So there's a lot more to come down the pike on urban crime. And uh, there is a tone deafness exhibited by Pritzker's appointees. And they let out some other convicted killer recently as well in February. So in a guy with a heinous record, um, even in prison. So there's there's just a whole lot here. Yeah, it, politically, my sense is that the, the earth is shifting underneath the ground of politicians more rapidly than some of them have figured out. Uh, back in 2020, uh, Everybody was on board with Black Lives Matter and equity and uh, release prisoners and, uh, you know, beat up on the cops. Uh, uh, don't worry about crime. Uh, Pritzker in particular, that was popular. I think uh, that drove the election to a large extent in, in 2018 and 2020. Um, but there's a big counter reaction now. Crime is the top issue. It's no surprise that Republicans are making law and order, you know, here in Illinois, uh, the number one issue. So Pritzker has one foot on his old uh, equity agenda and one foot on this new movement that he, I don't think, uh, quite recognizes very well that it's, uh, uh, it's pulling apart his party as well. And uh, I should, should add, too, this is, these are difficult jobs to fill in any event. I mean, who would want this job? Some prisoners deserve early release. They shouldn't be in prison. Um, you know, you got to assess these people, not knowing them personally, you know, based on the records that come. Inevitably, there's going to be some mistakes. Some guy is going to go out there and turn out to be as bad as he was feared to be. And, uh, you know, that would be a tough thing to have on your conscience if you were on the review board and voted against these things. I wouldn't want the job, frankly. So, you know, finding good people that are conscientious about this is a challenge. And I, I, I think uh, Pritzker has a real problem on his hands, uh, but uh, it's, it's self-inflicted to a large degree. He's uh, not recognizing the underlying forces going on here and uh, isn't recognizing the, the, the change of spirit even within his own party. You know, Matt, you, you've lived with this stuff all your life, too. You grew up on the South Side. Um, you've seen the ebbs and flows and these things, um, and lived it more personally than I have. Uh, do you think I have the politics of this right and the direction of the, the mood people in Chicago and around the country? I do. I had a chance, as you know, Mark, to get down deep into the South side once again, uh, in late 2020, when I went down there to do, uh, field work for, for my book. And I heard again and again from black people, and you can see it in the newspapers too, 
uh, watching what a lot of our aldermen in Chicago say. Um, you know, people are afraid to come out of their homes. Uh, it's gotten really bad. And uh, people in the hood talk about young men with no consciences who are basically sociopathic um, as sitting on their couches, putting bullets in their guns, ready, ready to go out and to commit mayhem. And you, when you walk down Michigan Avenue, not downtown, but in Roseland between 103rd Street and 115th Street, and you see what it looks like, and some guy tries to sell you drugs, and there's another guy lurching from left to right, crashing into a wall and vomiting, and there's nobody in the streets, and the lots are empty, and the buildings are burned, uh, you know, and there's maybe two or three stores open in the, in, in the whole six or seven blocks of the main business district. And yet you notice all this fine architectural detail. You know, you wonder, okay, human capital development and, you know, real estate development go hand in hand. And that's actually the biggest thing here. The public schools, and I'm sort of shifting a little bit from your original question, Mark, but, you know, we inevitably get to, okay, so what do we do? And we get to the political tone and thrust of the conversation these days, which you know, as I found out when I brought up the issue of mass incarceration, there's still a victim narrative. I recently interviewed a very interesting uh, black artist on the South Side. I'm hoping to write up a, a profile of him. He talked about the victim Olympics. Well, there is still a victim Olympics going on. So in the end, it comes back to parenting. It comes back to uh, school vouchers which we so badly need and now could probably actually have in Illinois. And it comes back to things like micro lending and uh, making good on traditional uh, city driven, but uh, market infused uh, economic development in our neighborhoods. Mayor Lightfoot's had a program in place uh, since she began called Invest Southwest, uh, looking at 11 or 12 um you know, distressed neighborhood downtowns and, you know, great. She's on the right track. There have been some early signs of interest, a few projects that have actually been green lighted good, but, um, you know, just holding community forums and writing stuff on butcher block paper, not good enough. We need to transform our neighborhood downtowns and our city schools. And the best way to transform city schools is with competition empowered parents who can take their state authorized education vouchers and go to Catholic and other private schools. Nothing will improve Chicago public schools more than competition from non-public schools. Yeah, Matt, you got a lot of that in your superb book that came out last year. Uh, tell us the title of it so I don't mess it up again. Uh, Notes of a Pissed Off Native Son, I think is right. the start. Uh, what Next Chicago, Notes of a Pissed Off Native Son on Amazon and all the rest. Um, you'll see there that um, Matt feels, as I do, that locking people up is not the solution to crime, but it's something you have to do in the uh, neighborhoods that have turned into what look like Mad Max movies is another line that Matt has used, which I will start stealing shamelessly, I think, Matt. We're going to continue to look at the hard data on these things and uh, tackle some of those other solutions. Uh, 
we're not going to be investing our way out of crime, as Lori Lightfoot uh, says, but that's part of the solution. Matt, you have something to add? Anything to finish off here? Well, just that I've been looking lately at the weekly crime data that come out from the city of Chicago, and I note that um, the week, was it week 13 or 14? The week 13 update that came out earlier this week shows a disturbing trend where a lot of the current uh, increase in crime in Chicago over um, last year to date and it's up 36% citywide so far, major crimes, much higher rates of increase in uh, lakefront communities like Edgewater, Lakeview, Lincoln Park, uh, particularly uh, the North Loop, the South Loop, the near South Side, Bridgeport even, and then Beverly, Mount Greenwood, and Morgan Park. And this was a trend identified late last fall when the Sun-Times reported a 200% increase then over the prior year to date in downtown shootings. And there was a professor from Northeastern Illinois University, uh, Lance Williams, I think I even remember his name. He said, look, you know, the thugs in the hood are looking for softer targets. <laughs> yeah, well, hello Edgewater, hello Lakeview, hello Lincoln Park. And so when you when you break down by district the annual weekly statistical reports, you see huge increases in theft, motor vehicle theft, um, often burglary, and in some districts, criminal sexual assault. So I'm telling you now, it's getting different. White progressives, you know, we're fine. Black lives matter, but oh yeah, well, there's always crime in Englewood. So actually black lives have never mattered to white progressives, but now they're getting carjacked. They're victims of armed robberies. I wonder if their politics will change at all about the police enforcement, vigilance, police manpower, aggressive, proactive policing, because I'll tell you, that's what this city and many like it, including Philadelphia and New York and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Seattle and Portland and Minneapolis. It's what they really need. So, you know, what is this great reckoning of rhetoric and politics going to actually lead to? And of course, we don't know, but I think change is in the air in 2022. And we started to see signs of it in local elections starting last fall. So it's going to be a very interesting year. I feel like we truly do live in interesting times. We sure do. Yeah, white areas, just to recap that, white areas are the places with the highest growth in crime rate. I, I think those numbers are indicating it's a very recent trend that you've just picked up on and uh, something we'll be watching, trying to get to the bottom of and and watching the political consequences of, as you, as you say. So, Stay tuned at WirePoints. Look at our articles on these topics that uh, we have at wirepoints.org. Free daily, uh, six days a week uh, newsletter with not just our articles, but uh, linked articles, the best from all perspectives. We focus primarily on, on other matters, but crime has become such an overriding issue that, that affects the economy and budgets and everything else that was our, our initial expertise. Uh, it's become such an overriding issue that we have no choice but to stay on top of it and try to figure out what's going wrong. So we'll continue to do that. 
We'll see you next time from Wirepoints. Thank you. So long, everybody.